Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, tonight, my guest is a candidate from the Green Party as part of my alternative candidate series that I've been working on, essentially my uh, virtual middle finger to the mainstream media to give some exposure to some candidates that you're not going to see on the mainstream media. Um, if this is your first time listening to V Radio, please visit my website, V hyphen or V dash or V minus radio dot org. Uh, there you can click archives and listen to a lot more shows like this one. I've had senators, congressmen, presidential candidates, uh, scientists, activists, documentary filmmakers, and a lot of great roundtable discussions on current events um, and issues basically facing our world. Um, I also host the official Occupy Detroit podcast, although I kind of put up the disclaimer that those shows are specifically just Occupy Detroit podcasts and don't necessarily reflect the views, or rather that Occupy Detroit does not necessarily endorse the views put up in other V radio shows. Um, so that being said, without further ado, um, first let me uh, introduce you. Uh, actually, I'll ask you to introduce yourself. Harley, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Well, thank you for having me, Neil. Uh, I am... Uh a Green Party candidate for president right now. I have uh, ran for several offices before. I mean, I've ran for governor of Michigan. I ran for the U.S. Senate against uh, Carl Levin. I ran a couple times for Congress. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't win. Uh, I've been active in politics for a fairly long time uh, in various political parties. I mean, uh, I uh, started out as a I'm a Barry Goldwater conservative when I was in high school. Even before that, when I was in junior high, I was for John F. Kennedy. So uh, those facts will let you know that I'm not really young. I'm, I'm 65 years old. I am retired. I, I used to work for the state of Michigan. Uh, I did that for 24 years. Uh, I'm, uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm trying to get the message out that we need to change our society and I think the Green Party is the way to do it. That's very much a, a good start. Um, I'd have to say, uh, you know, as I told you, you know, it's kind of my um, tradition here on V Radio. Uh, what was the precipice? What was the moment in your life that made you go from being someone who was just part of the world to someone who was trying to make it better? I suppose it was the Vietnam War. Uh, I, I had an interest in politics even before that. I mean. I really became interested in the in politics, listening to my uncle talk. My uncle was a farmer, and at the time in the 50s, they were trying to organize this national farmer, farmers organization to get a better price for milk, which did not succeed. It was sort of a farm union. Uh, I mean, listening to him talk about politics, and then I got in the eighth grade. My history professor made us do or history teacher made us do current events, and so John F. Kennedy was running when I was in eighth grade, and he motivated me to be interested in politics. And then when I was a senior in high school, I read Barry Goldwater's book, uh, Conscience of a Conservative, and I became a conservative for a while. But then I went to Michigan State there, and I, I spent a year there, but then I quit. And I ended up getting drafted, and I went to Vietnam, and well, the Vietnam experience sort of changed my life. I mean, I I really saw how useless wars are and how really they don't accomplish anything good and we have to do everything and we everything we can to avoid getting into wars. And 
that this is the most militaristic country in the world right now, and we need to change that. Um, and I, politics is the only way to change that uh, that I can see. You know, that's actually an interesting resume when you think about it. Uh, there are a lot of candidates, you know, who are running for office right now that think that they're in a position to tell our, you know, people in the military what to do who've never served, who've probably never been shot at. Um, who, and I'm not saying that you have to do these things to be qualified to be the president, but uh, it definitely gives you a different perspective when you have more real appreciation for what those people went through. And Vietnam in particular, um, you know, was definitely, at least in my recollection, part of a much larger cycle for the United States. We actually went over that. I don't know if you're familiar with, are you familiar with General Smedley D. Butler? No, I'm not. He wrote a book uh, before World War II called War is a Racket. Um, you can actually find it for free on PDF. And to anybody who's interested, you can. Uh, I actually we did a, a reading and a discussion of General Smedley Butler's book in a previous V Radio show, which you can find in the archives of my website. Uh, it was a two-parter show where we discussed the book. And what I found interesting about it, it's not a very long read, um, but all the stuff that he was describing, and this is pre-World War II. And with regards to uh, the way that wars are fought, you know who they're fought for, how they get started, um, was all very similar. You know, it was just it was playing the same game over and over and over again. And he basically predicted World War II in his book. And you know, he talked about things like you know they they made a a, a certain kind of wrench that was necessary for a certain kind of bolt. And only they only used this bolt on like two different things in the entire military, but they brought crap loads of these these wrenches, <laughs> you know. And somebody got paid for all of those wrenches, you know. Just the kind of Halliburton KBR stuff that you see nowadays. I actually originally thought that was a new phenomenon, but it pretty much goes back, you know, all the way to before World War II, and obviously before that, you know, war profiteers are a very common thing. You know, and they always seem to find some way of making a boogeyman in order to get the American people behind them to invade these countries, um, or even just within the same continent. The the Indian Removal Act was, you know, based on the propaganda of the savage Red Indian. Which don't get me wrong, there there were Native Americans who were violent, um, you know, but but it wasn't this big terrible menace that they had to mobilize the military for by any stretch of the imagination and some of the ones that ended up getting relocated like the Cherokee hadn't done anything to anyone um so just things like that it's been a historical precedent that the only thing consistent about war is that it's consistently fought for no good reason and that generally unless some form of money can be made in war wars won't be fought well, I agree with everything you said there. Um, <laughs> uh, we certainly don't need any more wars, and, and that's my biggest disappointment with Obama. And unfortunately, people don't seem to pay attention to what candidates say, because Obama said he was going to increase the troops in Afghanistan. That should have been a warning to people that he was pretty much following George Bush's policies. And... <sighs> I cannot figure out for what reason he's doing this either, except that he's supported by our large corporations. I know a lot of libertarians fear the government, but I myself feel, fear our large corporations. I really think it's our large corporations, that, which are heavily invested in things like the defense industry, that are causing these wars. I mean, without uh, 
the tremendous amounts of money that they make on these tanks and helicopters and Osprey and uh, they wouldn't be making them. Uh, For sure. And, you know, that actually kind of segues into a typical question that I ask a candidate. If you were president, what would you do about the wars that currently exist? Well, I think we need to just bring our troops home as quickly as possible. Uh, it, it sounds easy, but in a way, we're going to do that anyway. I mean, we're leaving Iraq right now, supposedly, although we're leaving all these contractors and all these uh, quasi-military people there who aren't actually part of our military, who actually cost us much more than our military people. And that's bankrupting our country. Uh, we did... We really can't afford to do this anymore, and it's to no good end. Uh, as simple as it is, just bring the troops home as quickly as possible. Uh, that's, and we need to stop supporting countries like Israel until they clearly decide that they're for peace. We need to not go into any country unless it's a United Nations effort, and then we should contribute no more than 10% of the pro the troops there uh, and that would be only after Congress this is one where I one place where I agree with Ron Paul Congress should make these decisions to send troops to a country not just the lone president the only time the president should send troops to a foreign country is if it's an extreme emergency you know any other time he should get uh, permission from Congress and why we still have troops in Germany and Korea and Japan I don't know. I, I mean, it makes no sense to me. These countries are at least as technologically advanced as we are. We have no reason to be defending them. They can defend themselves perfectly well. Uh, so, I mean, the simple answer to your question, again, bring the troops home now. Spend that money here. Uh, what about Iran? I am not as worried about Iran as a lot of people are. I think if we were to place the same sanctions on, intra, on Israel as we have on Iran right now, we would go a long way to lessening the tensions with Iran. I, th I think Iran is responding to what we are doing by supporting Israel, by the threat. They're responding to threats from Israel, and Israel would not be making these threats if, they did not have our support. If President Obama were to state that he will not go along with any invasion of Iran, I think then we could start talking to Iran about the need for nuclear weapons. Actually, I don't think Iran is a crazy, uh, run by crazy people. I, uh, I, I think they will make intelligent decisions. And, you know, nuclear weapons are expensive and useless. I mean, I think any country, when they think about it, realizes this. You cannot use them because you would have all the rest of the world against you. I mean, one thing World War II taught us is that nuclear weapons should never be used. I mean, they kill too many people, destroy too many things, uh, destroy our environment. Uh, it's just crazy to even think about using them. And by you know, our withdrawal of support from some uh, from Israel in particular 
would lessen the tensions in the Middle East. That's my opinion, but I think we need to have a hands-off policy. And I, I'm, I'm sure the Israeli government would make peace with them. Jews have lived in the Middle East for thousands of years. Uh, they lived there even when Muslims controlled that area. Jews can live with Arabs. It's it's us that it's our support, our military support that is propping up Israel and causing the tensions in the Middle East. Uh, a lot of people don't like to hear that, but that's what I think is happening. You know, I, I understand completely, and, it, and it's definitely a, it's a tough nut to crack. I think that um, people tend to get too caught up in the particulars on that issue, and I think one of the major issues behind all of it is that, like, it ends up leading, like, in some cases, and I'm not in any way suggesting that that's what you're doing, but, like, they'll get anti-Semitic about it, like, you know, suggest that it's a Jewish problem, and I'm like, well, you know... Israel is just one of the boys, along with all the other corrupt nations of the world, and they've got their, you know, they've got their agenda. But you know, it's it's not a racial issue. It's it's you know, I mean, the uh, United well, it, States invades people all the time. Issue. Yeah, go you know, ahead. It, it, it's definitely not a racial issue. I mean, I know there. I think the people in Israel are probably pretty well divided between those who want aggressive military policy and a peace policy, and. I want us to be supporting the Israeli peace movement, not the war movement or the military movement. Uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm not. It it doesn't have to be anti-Jewish to be. I'm I'm really anti the the militaristic leaders of Israel, not the Jewish people, because I th- I know many Jewish people that you know believe that peace is possible in the Middle East. Yes, actually, there's also um, what would be referred to as the anti-Zionist movement within the Jewish community. Um, I've seen some of those people talk, uh, you know, and I think that, um, I don't know, I mean, basically, when it comes to situations like war, at least I myself have a tendency to, to try to pull away from the situation and look for the real source of the problem. I mean, people were up in arms at one point because, you know, some Israeli military uh you know did some you know, like bombed a building in you know in uh, basically over on the Palestinian side which is bad but one of the things i pointed out to people when they were running around talking about it was that the people that were dead in that situation were just as dead as the people who die when somebody from Hamas walks into a coffee shop and blows himself up you know get to the core of the matter and figure out how to get these people talking you know, and and that's how you're really going to solve something. And you know, but in any case, uh, you know, all diatribes aside, you know, I think that that's true of basically all conflicts. We have to look to see, you know, like for example, we can't say those Americans. Like you find yourself doing that when you're talking about foreign policy. It's like, well, we are doing this or we are doing that. And I tend to have to, you know, even people like activists will do that. Like if they happen to be American, and I'll be like, well, we are you doing it? You know. Do you sanction it? And in most cases, you know, it's it's actually kind of hard to find people who favor most of these wars. Um, you know, I'm certainly not part of the we that, you know, thought that any of the violence that's being committed in this earth for most of the reasons it's being committed is okay. You know, we invaded Iraq. You know, I, I didn't invade Iraq. I, I doubt you did either. So <laughs> That's right. I, I mean, we. it is our leaders that are... 
um, advocating these policies and these these warlike actions and well these actual wars, um, George Bush, Barack Obama, and that's the problem. You know, I used to be a Democrat, but the the Democratic foreign policy now it it parallels the Republican foreign policy. I don't see a whole lot of difference. That's why I think we need an alternative party, um, and it's really amazing to me that people like me that are on the left and like Ron Paul on the right have similar views on what should be done with our troops, which is basically bring them all back home. Uh, And the American people are not as militaristic as our leaders are. People forget that before we went into Iraq, I don't think half the people in the country really wanted us to go into war at that time. Uh, they were sold, a, and the ones that did want us to go to war were sold a false bit of good, bill of goods. You know, it just was not necessary for us to go into Iraq, and it was not necessary for us to really go into Afghanistan like we did. I mean, sure, we probably it was probably necessary to take out the the training camps for Al Qaeda there, but that was done relatively quickly, and. We have to realize that Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden had a lot of support in the Muslim world because of our actions, because of the not only our support to Israel, but our support from, for royal families in the Middle East. Uh, it's no accident that most of those people that flew into the World Trade Center, uh, the terrorists supposedly, were from Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's a lot of unrest there in Saudi Arabia, I think that's hidden because it's such a rich country because of the oil revenue. But uh, I don't know if we should be supporting the royal family in uh, Saudi Arabia either. Uh, yeah, it is interesting I, that we, you I, know, that all the hijackers were identified as being Saudis and uh, yet we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> and a lot of these people are, are well-educated too. I mean, it wasn't just the poor people off the street that were flying these planes. Uh, you know, uh, it took money to get, you know, the training to get them here and stuff. Uh, sure. There's a lot we should uh, question about what actually went on. I, I, I mean, I don't think we, you know, I'm not going to go to, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. That, uh, I don't think that we actually caused that, the invasion there. But, our actions over the past 50 years or 60 years since World War II have certainly made us, uh, our government is not being particularly uh, friendly to, or appear friendly to Muslims around the world. Well, I mean, it's it's like we're, I mean, actually, there's a really good documentary about the war in Iraq called um, No End in Sight. And when you evaluate how we handled it, even when we got over there, it's like we wanted to have a terrorist factory. You know, we created a terrorist factory. Basically, you know, our choices over there and the way that we treated people, and this documentary is good. This guy got, um, you know, he got interviews with people really close to the Pentagon, in some cases like an aide to Colin Powell. Uh, He talked to the people who were initially in charge of the Iraq invasion, you know, and essentially, um, 
what you're looking at is is we create a situation that is favorable to creating insurgents so that we always have a reason to stay there so that KVR and Halliburton can continue to make the money that they're making now for rebuilding everything over there that they also made money helping us blow up you know it's it's just a essentially a money making machine the whole way and it also gives us an excuse to forever have control over the oil over there so you know whether we officially control it or not anybody you know who knows what's going on over there knows that the government that they have in place is not really representing the people but that's essentially when you look at neoconservative foreign policy and there's a great documentary you can watch about that called uh, the new american century which is about the think tank of the neoconservatives you know people like carl rove george bush dick cheney all neoconservatives believe that the only way for the America, you know, America to be safe is to invade all these countries and set up puppet governments. They don't even make any bones about it. Um, so, uh, did you have something further on that, or we move on to another? Uh, no, we probably should move on to something. Else. Yeah, we, we talked about it a lot. <laughs> I'm passionate about that one. I'll end up talking about it for hours. So. Yeah, I could too, friend. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, to anybody listening, if you're interested in any of the documentaries I've mentioned, most of them are available for free on my website in the must-see TV section. When you go to v-radio.org, you click must-see TV, and there's a crapload of great documentaries that I suggest everybody watch, and they're free. So that being said, um, another common hot-button issue when discussing things with a presidential candidate, health care. Well, that's one of the reasons why I've been active in politics for years. I mean... Uh, we are one of the practically the only advanced country in this world that doesn't have a national health care program of some kind. Uh, and it, it's I'm so disappointed in the Democrats uh, and for the program they passed. Uh, I mean, we need a single period of system. I, people are being fed a, a false. Well, they're being fed false information by insurance companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, when 30% of our the money that goes for health care you know, goes to the insurance industry for the bureaucracy, that's too much. I mean, a national health care program would actually save us probably at least 25% of our health care bill right there because we wouldn't have people figuring out how not to pay benefits which is basically what a lot of the insurance companies do. And I thought, you know, there would be some reform uh, with this new system, but I don't think there's going to be reform. Insurance companies are still going to figure out ways to not pay benefits. I was at my doctor's office last week, or, and he was telling me that, you know, there's certain insurance companies that if you don't do what the doctor says, they're going to drop you. I mean, if they can't drop you for pre-existing conditions, they'll figure out some other way to drop you if if they're if you're going to cost them money, which basically we need a government-run program that will just pay out money to provide services, not one that will pay out money to provide some services, but mainly keep a large chunk of it for the, for the bureaucracy. Uh, I mean, I was part of a government bureaucracy. I mean, I worked for twenty or for ten years as a caseworker for human services here in Michigan. Now, the government bureaucracy, no matter what you say about it, it's much more efficient than the private one. Uh, we take a smaller percentage of the money to administrate 
a government program than a private insurance company would. Uh, people don't realize that. Uh, Medicare is much more efficient when in terms of the amount of money that goes to the bureaucracy than private insurance companies. But that fact is not being publicized. Uh, that's because the insurance companies pay for our politicians. That's why I really fear the corporations. They they actually lie to people. They don't give them accurate information. And people that are complaining about national health care are actually the people that would want it, If I think, if they really understood what it, um, what it was, uh, what it would do. Uh, it would provide just as good of services as they got now, if not better. I mean, the Canadians have a, a system where the government, you know, takes care of you. They pay more in taxes, but they get benefits from it. Well, I don't think they pay more for health care than we do. Uh, they pay more for maybe some other things, but the health care system in Canada is actually cheaper than the one in this country, and the Canadians live longer than we do, and and they have to deal with more cold weather than we do, so... It's actually must be working. Well, yeah, and actually the funny thing is, is one of the benefits of me being, you know, on the Internet, uh, you know, is that I get to talk to people from all over the world. And the Zeitgeist Movement obviously has chapters in Canada. I have friends who live there now. And I ask them, you know, how's the health care? And they said it's great. You know, that's from people who are living there. And the common uh, propaganda that was getting spread the whole time was that supposedly, you know, you don't, you know, that's the one they have in Canada. Trust me, you don't want their health system. And I'm like, you know what, man? You know, you obviously don't know what you're talking about. Because, like, I have friends right now, a guy, actually a friend of mine who got hit by a car, okay, and his shoulder doesn't work right anymore. And they did a, they did one scan on him, and then they billed him for that, and he really needs an MRI. And he's probably never going to get it. You know, I there was another guy, actually, a friend of mine who works at a drugstore. Uh, he's the manager there. And a guy comes in with a thumb that was cut off, okay? You know, as in his thumb is no longer on his hand. And he's in there to buy disinfectant and bandages, and Jesse, meaning you know, my buddy who manages the store, looks at him and goes, what the hell are you doing here? You need to go to a hospital. He's like, it costs too much. I'm not going to do it. You know, and the guy wasn't a bum. He wasn't homeless or anything. You know, he was just another citizen trying to get by. There's terrible stories like that. Your friend who needed an MRI, he must not have good insurance, right? He has none. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean... Uh, I have doctors that, you know, of course, there's another thing about over-prescribing things that, like tests. Uh, I think sometimes doctors prescribe tests. I mean, doctors, a uh, hospital buys a MRI machine, and it costs a lot of money, so they have to make that money back. So their doctors prescribe all these tests for them. I mean, I had MRIs that, uh, well, I don't think it, I needed it. Uh, it was for a bad back, and I had the MRI, and I went to the pain specialist, and they said, well, it shows your back is bad on the left side. I said, but it's the right side that hurts. And they said, well, the MRIs don't actually show everything. So what they do, they sent me for more x-rays. <laughs> uh, it's like all these tests are expensive, and they don't necessarily do a lot. They don't do what they're supposed to do, but the machines have to be paid for. Uh, right. And... 
And unfortunately, insurance companies, they say, well, sure, we'll pay for it. We'll just pass the cost on to uh, the employer and the employer, and then we'll tack on another 30% for our uh, bureaucracy. And uh, and people think that employer-provided health care is the answer. Actually, I want to separate employer-provided health care from employers. I, I think people should start paying for their own health care. Now, I have a plan on my system where, you know, if everybody paid 8% of their income, we could provide health care. That 8% of their income plus a copay based on your income, you know, a progressive thing. Like the more you, obviously, if you're a millionaire, you can afford to pay most of your health care. So your copay would be high. If you're just working for minimum wage, you wouldn't ha- you'd have a low copay. But if we everybody should pay a share of their health care, that would free up people. I, I know a lot of my libertarian friends, they talk about freedom. I myself felt like I was trapped in a way. Health care is so expensive, and I was working for the state which provided health care, and I had a family to support. So I could not... I. I could not actually do the things that I wanted to do because I felt I, you know, I had to provide health care for my family. Uh, so I stayed working for the state for, well, till I retired. And if we're really concerned about freedom, I think we should provide health care for everybody. I mean, we're going to charge them for it. We're going to tax them, and we're going to, but but they're going to get a benefit from that tax money, and they're also going to get freedom. Like one of the things I wanted to do, I. We bought 69 acres of my wife's parents' farm. I wanted to have a farm, but I never felt I could quit my job in order to do that. But if we would have had national health care, I could have quit my job, and then I'd be growing locally produced food right here for local consumption. That's what I wanted to do. And and that's what we need people doing uh, we need to switch to a more green economy like that where people have the freedom to go out and, and you know, buy a couple acres and raise vegetables and sell them and make a living doing that uh, if they want to. I mean, right. that's, not the, that's not something everybody would want to do. I come from a farm background, so that's something I wanted to do, but uh, health care would actually give people freedom. I mean, a person might want to open up a body shop to repair cars or to build furniture, but they can't do that because the health care is so expensive. You know, it costs tens of thousands of dollars for some people to get health insurance for a family. That is ridiculous. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, you know, and the funny thing is, is that it's, I think that it's another, just like the war, and I actually was going to comment on that, but it's relevant to this as well, is that, I think that a lot of people who've never been in a position, first of all, to know anyone who's went to war, and somebody who's never been in a position to know anyone who doesn't have health care, you know, it doesn't get it. And, and it's an invisible problem to them. It's someone else's problem. You know, it, it doesn't have a face. You know, for me, the fact that my friend got hit by a car, you know, and there's nothing he can do to be sure that he didn't do permanent damage to his body, you know, is right there in my face. Now, mind you, I live in Michigan just like you do, and the economy here is like in a downward spiral, you know, like a, 
you know, Japanese Zero over Pearl Harbor. You know, just boom. You know, it's it's just a matter of time, you know, before everything collapses here. And I'm sure you remember, like, it wasn't but a couple of years ago that Jennifer Granholm thought she was going to have to shut down, you know, the Michigan State government. And uh, so basically, you know, it it is not real to many of these people. And the ones who, uh, especially, you know, the ones I would call, you know, the, the 2.5 kids and the gas guzzler car and, you know, those people are still in denial that this will ever happen to them. When I interviewed people at Occupy Detroit and the various other Occupies that I visited, I was not surrounded by uh, homeless people, you know, although there were, there were, you know, there were homeless people there, but I was not surrounded by your typical homeless people. Uh, you know, I was also surrounded by... There's one guy in particular, for example, a former conservative, <laughs> you know, just like you and me, you know, uh, did everything the way that you're supposed to do it as a capitalist, uh, kept re-educating himself, had his own business when he couldn't find a job. You know, he did everything he could. And when he was done, he was living in a shelter, you know, because there is a bottom that you can hit that you cannot get out of if the economy has fallen apart. And I think that kind of segues actually into my next question for you. Um, which is, what would you, as president, do about the economy? Well, there's several things that I think we need to... Well, we need to spend less money on defense and more money on giving people opportunity. And I think we need... There are social programs that we need, and the social programs we have that need to be improved are like education. I mean, education, you know... We can't have free education. It needs to be paid for, but it needs to be paid for by all of us. We all need to invest in our children. Uh, I mean, I'm advocating that we bring our troops home and use the money we save to hire a million new teachers. Our, our educational system needs vast improvement. I mean, we need to – our society is changing. Uh, I mean, more and more uh, – well, if they are two-parent families, both parents are working. If they're single-parent families, that par- one of the parents is working. I mean, we need we need schools available for our preschool kids rather than sending them to oh, uh, a daycare center or something. We need to actually start educating them at a younger age. I mean, we're losing. I, I mean, I happen to know that a lot of uh, kids from uh, lower-income groups they don't start out behind people from uh, middle class or upper class backgrounds. They don't start out behind. They get that way because they don't have the same advantages preschool. I mean, your upper class people or your well-off people, their kids are well prepared when they start school. They haven't been, uh, you know, just sitting at home watching cartoons and playing video games. At least a lot of them haven't. And so they're well prepared to school they're socialized and and they know what's expected of them. Uh, people from uh, some of the lower income groups, their children are not really prepared for school. So we need more preschools. We need more money for grade schools and more money for high school. And we actually need more money for college to ensure that everybody who can benefit from a college education has that college education. I mean, yes, it takes tax money to do that. But we will get a return for our tax money. I mean, we'll have a better society. It's education is the answer to almost everything. Um, so we need more education. Uh, we need to improve our uh, 
cities and towns. Uh, we need to spend money on le- less money on national defense. We need to provide health care for everybody. These are things that I'm advocating. Uh, we need to cut down our work week. Our society has changed. I mean, we, it has been actually for a number of years now where we don't require the number of workers to build things and, and maintain our society in certain ways that we did at one time. We need to, we should cut the minimum, or the, the work week down. You know. mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think France has the right idea, 35 hours a week and, and a higher minimum wage. I mean, I'm advocating at least a $10 an hour minimum wage and a work week of 35 hours a week. And every every hour over 35 hours, they pay double time, $20 an hour. I mean, I would like to advocate more, but I don't think people would stand for anything more at this time. But if we had a shorter work week, we would distribute the jobs more fairly among people. I, I know people. I, I think I myself was qualified for a lot better jobs than I had. There just weren't jobs available. And now it's even worse. Uh, there's a lot of people that have invested a lot of money in their education, yet there's no jobs for them. I mean, I know this from personal experience. I've had two daughters, well, actually, three daughters that have graduated from uh, college within the past uh, three years. And one of them got her master's degree, and she's just working part-time as a teacher and part-time as a, oh, I forget what, it's like a after-school program. And for the teaching money, job, she pay, gets paid pretty good money, but it's only part-time. She can't afford her health insurance. My two other daughters that have graduated in the past couple of years, they're working part-time in grocery stores. One of my daughters has two jobs. Uh, she works part-time in the grocery store and part-time in a shoe store because there just are not enough good-paying jobs around for everybody. I mean, granted, Michigan, and especially the Flint area here, is one of the worst-hit areas in the country economically. But the same thing is true all over the country. There are not enough jobs for the people. So the, uh, the thing is, we need to eliminate welfare. I mean, the money we could save by eliminating the welfare program by cutting the work week down, we would come out ahead. Uh, Let me, okay, so that I understand. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, okay, so we eliminate welfare. I am I am missing something here. We eliminate welfare by cutting the work week down? We, we cut down the work week so there's jobs for everybody, and then we have no need for welfare. Oh, okay. Uh, I yeah, see where you're going with that. Yeah, you yeah, replace yeah. it by just giving us more opportunities. And I, I totally agree with you on the education thing. I think, though, that as you've also pointed out, that um, we're kind of at a point where the system is falling apart at the seams, and some of those seams are where people would go to get re-educated. Like, that's why I said, like, the guy I was talking to at Occupy Detroit, you know, re-educated himself, like, three different times. And it's basically because we're kind of in a state where it's not in the best interest of our employers to find us useful. So they're going out of their way to eliminate as many jobs as possible or to outsource them to places where people are so desperate that they'll take whatever scraps you throw them from the table. Um, you know, they're basically just kind of moving around the, the organized labor uh, movement, you know, and if they can't, you know, use sweatshops, then they'll just automate it. 
And I think that um, I understand where you're coming from about, you know, better education, more money in education, and definitely about spending less on, spending on um, you know, the military. We're already the most advanced military. We could stop all military spending except for maintaining what we already have and still be the most advanced military probably for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we wouldn't fall behind of anyone. You know, we're already way up there. So, I mean, there are little conspiracy theories here and there about China supposedly catching up to us. But, you know, that overall, though, I, I just cannot imagine any country on this planet actually being a real threat to us. And I don't consider acts of terrorism, you know, along that line. Because we had billions and billions of dollars supposedly set in the path of preventing things like 9-11 and more money didn't solve anything. You know, some guys with box cutters flew a airline into buildings. That's right. In fact, you know, we're actually pretty lucky. There's very little ter- terrorism when you come to think about it. Uh, your chances of being killed by a terrorist are pretty slim. Actually, uh, yeah, Peter Joseph quoted in Zeitgeist to Denim when he said, um, it's actually interesting to point out that more people die of peanut allergies every year than from than from supposedly terrorist acts. Well, I mean, look at all the troops that have died I mean, in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, a lot more troops have died and been injured than were ever injured or killed in 9-11 there. Uh, and that's just our troops that I'm counting. I mean, we've killed tens of thousands of Iraqis and Afghanis, and each time we kill an innocent civilian, and we do kill innocent civilians, it's, you know, a fact of life. When you're fighting a war, there is collateral damage. Innocent people do get killed. Absolutely. And each time you killed an innocent person, you, you've made enemies of his mother, his brother, his nephew, his uncle. You know, they start to hate us. And, and it's, particularly bad the way we're killing them. They don't even see it coming, you know. A plane two miles up in the air shoots a rocket down and kills people. You know, that's just not something that we would like hanging over us. And imagine how the people in Afghanistan think, you know, geez, at any time a rocket could come out of the sky and blow up my house. Now, is that the way to make friends with somebody? No. Absolutely not. Um, Now, we've covered um, a lot of different ground here, and I wanted to discuss a little bit about the Green Party itself. What made you you decide to join the Green Party? And if you were to try to explain the Green Party to someone who is not familiar, what would you say? Well, it's a party with values. I mean, values like – I mean, we value certain things. Like, I always – we have four pillars and we have ten key values. Well, I can't always remember the ten key values, so I concentrate on the four pillars. I mean, we believe in four basic things. We believe in nonviolence, ecological wisdom, social justice, and grassroots democracy. I mean, our that's our four pillars. Uh, the ten key values are things like feminism and and future focus and things. They're just they're merely extensions of our four pillars, though the way mm-hmm. I see it. And we're a party with values. We we believe that we need to do things to bring about a better world. We need to bring out a more sustainable world. The, we are not on a sustainable path right now. Uh, 
we cannot maintain the population the way it we cannot maintain the population of the world with the standard of living we're enjoying right here at the United States. Now, we can all enjoy a really good life if we learn how to cooperate whether, rather than engage in all these senseless conflicts. And I see the, the Green Party as a party that's really advancing peace, advancing uh, the environment, advancing, well, advocating social justice that uh, everybody should enjoy and the benefits of a society. Uh, the other parties just aren't advancing these causes like we are. I mean, they should be, but I don't think they are. They're, they're concerned with, oh, well, everybody has a job and everybody has, you know, votes for me and, and certain people get rich and uh, uh, every, too much self-interest. I mean, everybody has, you know, looks out for themselves. That's a given. But everybody also has a social conscience. And we in the Green Party try to bring that into our politics. The social content, uh, the social consciousness and the individual responsibility. Uh, yeah, I love the Green Party platform. I actually read the whole thing on a different episode. Um and overall, and it's actually I've caught you know it's caused me to consider the possibility of joining myself, although it's been a while. Um, my experiences with the Libertarian Party kind of put me off from being interested, you know, in party politics for a while. But um, uh, overall, though, I've I've had good experiences with most of the people that I interacted with there, and I, I think that um you know when when you talk about like you said you know a, a party of principles and values and such, uh, I think that's usually lost on people. You can look at the platform of the Green Party and then compare it, you know, to basically what any other politician even says. You know, it's not even the same language. Virtually nothing in there, for example, are you going to hear out of people like Romney or Sanatorum or even Barack Obama, you know. And some of them are things that I think mankind is doing its best to pretend are not important, you know, that that really are. You know, especially like, you know, the ecological point of it. You know, people who care about the environment get labeled as hippies or whatever as if we don't need to care about the environment, you know, yeah. as if we don't live here. You know, it's – and I think that what I'm mostly worried about when it comes to stuff like that is that we we achieve an ecological point of no return. You know, uh, free market libertarians will yell and scream about their right to trade and, you know, all that other jazz and – I always point out to them, you know, if there's only five apples left on the earth, you don't have the right to take six. You can read as much Ayn Rand or Mises as you want. It's not going to make six apples if there's only five. So if you did not intelligently utilize the world's resources in such a way to ensure that there would be six apples, no amount of your proselytizing or your your gun ownership or whatever is going to give you the right to take six apples. And that basically is true of virtually everything that we need, you know, for living on this planet. And I don't – there are parties that pay lip service to the idea, but like you said, you know, um, the Democrats' foreign policy and the Republicans' foreign policy is no different, and that's because they're both pigs feeding from the same trough. There is no elephant 
There is no donkey anymore. They're both pigs, and they're both feeding from the same trough, and they're telling us that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. You know? Well, that's right. And unfortunately, I, our country is controlled by a, a small group of people that are very rich, very, very rich. It's You know, the Occupy movement talks about the 1%. But actually, it's probably the one quarter of that one percent that are really super rich, or or maybe it's only one tenth of one percent. And those people that control our large corporations and our large financial institutions, they have a lot of them don't really produce much of anything, but they control everything. And we need to bring the power back to people. Somehow, we need to get people to understand that their individual vote, one vote may not make a difference, but if we all band together and if we all vote for a better world, it's possible. Uh, I think that, I think uh, Barack Obama tacked into something, although I think he failed. I mean, he didn't deliver on his promise. He didn't deliver the, the change that people hoped for. Uh, I mean, he let me down. I mean, I didn't vote for him, but... Uh, I had hopes for him anyway, but he let me down. Uh, his uh, health care program is a boon to the insurance companies. They're going to get rich. <laughs> They're going to force us to buy insurance. Yeah, I still don't understand how that was supposed to work. We're supposed to have universal health care provided for us was what he he campaigned on. It's what the Democrats kept claiming they are going to give us. And then instead we get a bill that makes it illegal for us not to purchase health care. Yeah. I mean, in Michigan, we have to purchase car insurance, you know. But, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have to buy a car if we don't want to. But here, with health insurance, you have to purchase it. Uh, uh, now, I, I think everybody should be purchasing it myself. But we should do it in, more, if, in a more sensible way, in the most cost-effective way for all of us. And it's not only health care, but all our problems should be handled in the most beneficial way for everybody uh like you said we're all living on this earth and we have to learn how to get along there's what seven billion people right now uh we have to decide what kind of lifestyle we want what is a meaningful lifestyle and what can we do to provide that to the everybody mm-hmm. not just a limited few uh it might might mean that some of the super rich may have to give a little bit I mean, I'm not against rich people. I mean, uh, to me, I've met a lot of rich people. They're just basically like me and you. They just have more things. I I know if I had a lot more money, I would probably be doing the same thing I'm doing right now. Uh, I might uh, eat at a little fancier restaurant, but uh, basically I'd live the same way. Uh, In fact, I, I try to live below my means. I mean, we're, we are a rich country. Uh, I am old enough to remember what it was like in the 50s. Uh, I mean, we just have so many toys nowadays. In fact, I don't know if, but we have maybe too many toys. I mean, computers are a good thing. I love my computer. And I'm probably eventually going to get a nice little tablet. But that is not really the important thing in life. The important thing in life is your interactions with other people. I mean... To me, a computer is only useful because it helps me interact with other people. The the toy in itself is just a toy. 
if you if you use it just a toy, that's all it's going to be as a toy. Uh, we have. Uh, well. <laughs> well, no, you've done a really good job of articulating that, and um, I, the, the issue of too many toys, I think, is also one of the reasons why people are not really. You know, they're kind of asleep at the wheel, and I don't really think that's by accident. I think that's by design. I think it's engineered. Um, when you study the work of Edward Bernays, uh, which you can check out in films like Cywar or Adam Curtis's series, The Century of the Self, you know, they got high-end psychologists and sociologists to help manipulate society into being good little consumers so that we're not paying attention to who's really behind the curtain, um, you know, or who's pulling the strings, so to speak. And uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why we have a very uh, unsocially conscious uh, society. It's it's very easy for candidates to pass by without uh, the people voting for them really knowing anything about them. Um, you know, go ahead. Really, you've hit on it there. The unfortunate thing is people really don't know a lot about the candidates. And we in the Green Party are no different than the Republicans and Democrats. People don't pay attention until the last minute, the majority of people. There's news junkies like me that watch news programs for four or six hours a day sometimes. Not every day, but sometimes. Uh, and, but the majority of people don't do that. I mean, they tune into the elections just before the election. And unfortunately, the information they get is these misleading 30-second ads. Uh, I mean, we need another – we need a, a national program where we – give all candidates that are on the ballot equal time to explain their positions to people so people can make really intelligent decisions. I mean, democracy is no good if you give the people false information or don't give people enough information. I mean, a person like Rush Limbaugh has made a living telling half-truths. It's not that everything he says is a lie, it's just half the truth. And even though he a lot of these people like him claim to be giving the other side too. They're not. They give a distorted picture of the other side. There's no way that Barack Obama is a socialist. And I don't think people in this country really understand what socialism is. I mean, I am for a lot of social programs. I mean, public education is socialism. Uh, Medicare is socialism. Uh, Social Security is socialism. But they are good forms of socialism. They are socialistic programs that free people up. They make it so you you know you get an education, so you have opportunities. They you get health care, so you live a healthy life. These these things we, people would actually want, I think, if they actually knew what they were. I mean, sure, they associate socialism with the form of socialism they had in Russia, the communism. That's not a that's not a good model, um, and they, you know, they condemn this Euro- European socialism. But actually, the Europeans live longer than we do in a, in a lot of their countries, so they must be doing something right if they're living longer. Uh, mm-hmm. No, you've done a good job of articulating that too. We're actually down to the last five minutes now, um, and uh, as you were pointing out, they're not giving the the equal time, and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this series for Alternative Candidates here on V Radio. And I want to thank you for being on tonight. Uh, you want to take a moment to tell the listeners where they can learn more about your campaign? Well, uh, they can go to harleymickelson.com. 
there's a it's a website. It's brief. It's to the point. Uh, it'll let you know where I stand on what or on major issues. Uh, it doesn't cover everything. I mean, they should go to the Green Party of the United States and look up their platform. They should go to the Green Party of Michigan and look up their platform. Uh, it's uh, the Green Party of Michigan. I think is uh, migreens.org right now. Uh, gp.org is the Green Party of the United States. Uh, they should find out about our candidates. Uh, right now, along with myself running for president, there's Jill Stein, there's Roseanne Barr, and there's Kent Mesplay. Those are we're the, the four major people that are running. Uh, they should also investigate them. Uh, I mean, punch their names into Google, punch in Green Party, and start doing homework. Uh, the more educated voters get, the better off we'll be. And I'm sure a lot of people will consider it. And I want people to start voting for what they want. I mean, don't just vote against somebody. Uh, there's been, I, I'm afraid the Republicans are just trying to get people to vote against Obama. And the, the Democrats, you know, when the, the Republican nominee is is uh, decided they will just be convincing people, oh, that person is a bad person, you know, they'll, they'll be filling the airways with negative ads. Do homework. Find out where all candidates stand and vote for what you want. If you don't vote for what you want, you're never going to get it. You know, I think it was Eugene, Eugene Debs or something that said something about it's better to vote what, for what you want and not get it than vote for what you don't want and get it. All right. Well, thanks for what you said on that one. And um, thanks again for everybody who tuned in tonight. Um, B Radio is still looking for donations for the month of March. Um, and uh, thanks for being on. Uh, go ahead and obviously give them your name one more time, too, so they know who they're looking into. Okay, that's Harley Mickelson. That's Harley like a motorcycle. And Mickelson, M-I-K-K-E-L-S-O-N. Spelled a little bit strange, but that's Norwegian spelling. Um, All right. Thanks uh, again. Did you have something else? You got like two minutes, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just want to encourage everybody again, get involved. Uh, You know, uh, we in the Green Party are always looking for candidates, you know, and uh, go to your computer and Google Green Party and Google your local state Green Party and, and do what you can you know, if you can't run for office yourself, support candidates. Yep, excellent. And speaking of that, tomorrow night we have Rocky Anderson of the Justice Justice Party. So please consider tuning in to hearing from that. I'm going to try to get all the rest of the Green Party candidates and some of the other Libertarian candidates as well. If there's an alternative candidate you'd like to hear on V-Radio, please don't hesitate to contact me. Check out my website, v-radio.org. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in tonight. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.